Hey everybody, this week we will not have a new episode of Everything Went Black, and um, we had to skip this week. So, to keep everything rolling and maintain a level of professionalism, I'm representing to you an episode from The Vault. This is episode 10 of Everything Went Black. It's a Halloween episode that I did with Mike Scandato, the man behind Inhuman, and The Last Stand, two great New York City hardcore bands, and also my co-host over at Necromaniacs, a podcast I also co-host with uh, Jeff Kashid, but Mike co-founded that with me. Mike was also on episode one of Everything Went Black. So to fill in the space and keep things going, it made sense to have an episode that Mike and I did. This episode came out way back, October 27th, 2011. Man, time flies. So I hope you enjoy. Podcast episode 10. I'm here with Mike Scandato. Got a lot of material to go over tonight. Yes, indeed. Hello again, everyone. It's <laughs> here a few months back and uh, glad to be back again. We just finished watching the um, West Memphis 3, the, the latest chapter in um, Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost 3, Purgatory. Purgatory. Yep. So, um, you know, that was uh, obviously made in the wake of the release of the three Paranormal. Mm-hmm. Um, West Memphis 3. Right. Um, from what I understand, uh, what we saw, um, initially was supposed to be out over the summer. Um, and of course, in uh, August, August 19th, uh, the West Memphis 3 wound up going free, uh, much to the surprise of many, including myself, having been following the case since the first documentary aired in uh, the summer of 96 on HBO. And uh, the second one they aired in 2000 and, you know, about a, a decade and change of, of you know, uh, still, I was kind of keeping up with the case, not as much as I was at one point, um, but I was, as I said before we started the interview, I pretty much resigned to the fact that, that uh, they would probably never go free and that Damien Eccles may be executed. So this is uh, pretty amazing that they're all free men right now. Yeah, the news came sort of out of left field because I remember it was you know back in August I was uh, I was in Europe and uh, I just went to check my email mm-hmm. <laughs> look at look at like my you know Facebook and all that yeah. and there was all this activity about uh, the news of them being released and initially it was only two out of the three yes um, it was uh, Damien Eccles and Jesse, Jesse. Skelly mm-hmm. who were going to be released because of some curious. Um, Alfred, Ar- Alfred plea. Yeah, mm-hmm. some quirk in the Arkansas legal system mm-hmm. where they actually pleaded guilty. They said something, uh, although they unfortunately did not really explain the Alfred plea too well in this documentary. Um, maybe they want you to do your homework, but uh, they, they reference it. I guess it came from something in North Carolina. They said this, you know, versus North Carolina, Alfred versus North Carolina, something like that, which may have been the first time. Uh, where I guess um, someone who was uh, guilty and about to go free had to say they were guilty while maintaining so many years of, of innocence. 
had to say, you know, uh, verbally or whatever that you were indeed guilty of the crime in order to be freed from prison for the crime. So Yeah, there was some detail where the time served came into play mm-hmm. and you know, but but each one of the of um the three of them prefaced their their uh, guilty plea with that they're innocent and whatever. Right. And I mean apparently uh, if you see the documentary without, you know, spoiling it although the good thing about this documentary is that you know it has a great ending. Um, uh, the judge that had been presiding over the case since day one in 1993 uh, would not hear it, as they say. was not having it for any evidence, for any chance of retrial, for any chance of, of just about uh, anything. And uh, this guy getting on in his years, and even from what I remember watching it was there was a time where he was supposed to have... have Stepped down and he did not. Um, and it's just a horrible, horrible uh, justice system in Arkansas. Um, and then ultimately, they, they were able to get a new judge in there in 2010 or, or late 2010 or 2011. And um, had the, the West Memphis Three not decided to do this Alfred plea, there would have been a new trial. And the judge was, was about to okay the trial if they did not uh, admit their guilt, which would have been unbelievably bad for uh, everyone, I think. Um, even if they wound up free, it would have taken several more years, meaning more years for them in jail. And I don't think Arkansas could afford the, the image of, of, the, of, right. of this any longer. You know what I mean? Um, and I think they knew that, which was why they were even probably entertained the Alfred plea, because they were like, new trial. It would show all the terrible police work, the jury tampering, the, the judge's horrible vendetta. It would be a nightmare. So, you know, it's it's bad because the killer's never been caught and three innocent guys had to say they were guilty. But it's good because it's over. And it's, in a sense, it's over for the three of them. It's over. Well, their incarceration's over. Yes. But there, there's the, you know, the game plan, I guess they have, is they're going to try to clear their names. Mm-hmm. But... This time they're doing it from out, outside in freedom. Yeah, not, not yeah. And, um, uh, and one of the stipulations that they, they can't even... Because a lot of people are like, oh, they'll get a civil suit or, oh, they'll sue. Well, no, they, they can't sue and there can be no civil suit. They can't really do anything. They, they can't do anything, but just they can continue to clear their name. Um, but they can't, you know, get any kind of uh, big, uh, you know, there is no other trial. There can't be, you know, another trial either. So... You know, it, it's kind of bittersweet, obviously. I just, I'm just happy because these guys should never have been in jail, uh, period, let alone this this long, you know. So, I mean, yeah, I, I'll i never forget watching it in 96 in the summertime on HBO and just being completely like, what the hell? Like, I, you know, and it turns out the two directors initially just took on the case not be, uh, not even because they thought the three were were uh, innocent. It was just an interesting case mm-hmm. uh, initially to them. And as they were making it, they had uh, went back and, and told the people at HBO, yeah, by the way, we actually think these guys are innocent. Like, you know, we're, as we're going along with this documentary, um, you know, uh, we, we, we're convinced they're innocent now. They went into it with a completely open mind um, when they first started shooting, didn't know what to believe. But as all these things just started happening, they they immediately were like, "Well, wait a minute, you know, this this is this is pretty crazy. These there's three innocent people in jail for a crime they didn't commit, 
And uh, yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, after all these years, I, I, I don't really know anybody who came away watching any of the documentaries saying, no, justice was served. These guys were guilty. Do you? No, Mike? definitely not. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, everyone... Well, the, 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 the one thing, though, is like everyone thought that it was... Um, the buyer's father. Father, yes, Mark who, Byers. Mm -hmm. Mark Byers, who had actually in in the second one, it, it appeared pretty clear that that guy had something to do had with some it. Some guilt, was, mm -hmm. you know. Right, right. But in the third one here, he had this revelation, and he decided that a few in 07, apparently yeah, um, that, he he uh, once some some DNA evidence had been submitted about um, a hair on the ligature, which showed no trace whatsoever belonging to the West Memphis Three, um, it, 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 you know, something in Byers' head was like, wait a minute, you know, that's, DNA evidence is pretty strong now. But the only bad thing about that is, is that it also, um, it didn't give any kind of concrete, okay, it, this is the killer. Like, it's it, something about it was almost 1% of, of, the, of the world could have done it with yeah, this weird it kind of evidence. Yeah, it just cleared the three But it, yeah, it, it cast the, the doubt on the West Memphis Three and it, and it cleared them in a way. Um, you know, not officially yet, obviously, but and then Byer became a big, a big ally, a big supporter. Yes, of yes, yeah. and uh, one of the mothers of uh, the other children also uh, changed her tune completely, and um, you know, rallied to their defense as well. But the the two main scumbags who never wavered, uh, Gary Gitchell and the uh, who was the the, the policeman. And of course, the judge. Who I mean, God, I just I don't know. I, I guess if if you believe something hard enough, and you know you're wrong, you're still gonna believe it. I just Is that what that means? I, I think that it was just the, the hubris mm -hmm. of uh, the judge because he was you know didn't want to see wanted to save face somehow and just be like yeah. I made this decision and stick by it. I'm not gonna entertain that's, any other that's that's some face saving though. I mean, wow. Well, these I mean, three guys' lives were spent yeah. on bars. You know. I I don't know. I, I at some point. If, if, if the buyer's father caved, you would think maybe these guys would cave, but, uh, you know, I, I guess not. I mean, their reputation as people in law and, and a judge, um, obviously at stake, but I don't know anyone who watches those two documentaries, though. I mean, really, I, it's just, yeah. you, the whole, it's like, the, what do you, the whole world is against you, and you're still holding on to this, and you're still damning three innocent people. It's just pretty unbelievable. And in this third installment, it sort of points the finger that somehow the Hobbs stepfather yes, might be involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, without, again, without spoiling it, I believe this does not come out until January, although there was a New York City screening uh, a few weeks back that a friend of ours attended, um, and I was able to get an, uh, an advance uh, screener copy. Um, yeah, there, there's a new uh, player, so to speak, that was a, he was mentioned in the, the 60 Minutes piece uh, briefly, but this shows a lot more of, of in, some interviews that were done with him where his credibility is very bad and he had a very violent past and none of this was brought to light in 1993, 1994 because the cops never questioned anybody about this man. And simple things that I think would, would if had this murder, say, occurred in Brooklyn today, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. The neighborhoods of where all three of those kids lived would be, would have been canvassed. Uh, the neighboring homes of the three children, yes, a cop would have probably knocked yeah. on their door. Um, Interviewed people. Very simple uh, things that, I'm not a cop, I don't know what simple is not. I mean, I would think that this would be something on the top of the list of things to do, 
I think would have gotten done today in 1993 in West Memphis, Arkansas, none of these things apparently took place. And they were a month into the case and had nothing. And, and that is another huge reason why they dragged three, you know, metalheads in, yeah, in, in for this. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, yeah. I mean, again, the West Memphis Three, I mean, it's been talked about a lot. Um, but I think this, this movie, just uh, the new documentary is just, you know, it's weird. It's just going to be like, it's going to anger people again. It's just going to be like, wow, just a reminder of, of injustice that went on. But the, the best part about it, like I said, is that it, it has a happy ending um, for the West Memphis Three, at least. And, um, you know, I, I can't see uh, anyone who, who saw the first two, uh, you know, dismissing this because, oh, well, I know how it ends. But you, you're definitely going to want to see this movie. There's a lot of footage from the early 90s uh, that was not in either of the two documentaries, um, which is in this. And something we noticed, they, they kind of made, had a very kind of old look to it. Um, the filmmakers, probably, you know, they might have done this on purpose or it might have been some wear and tear on the film from 93 or 94. But it almost has a very kind of gritty look to it, a lot of that. Yeah, it almost looks like um, sort of a grindhouse. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, which, I, you know, I thought actually looked, looked pretty cool, yeah. um, you know, up against the modern footage. And, of course, just like in the other two, uh, Metallica provides the... Uh, you know the soundtrack, and I don't. Know, I think the music fits uh, perfectly, actually. You yeah, know, definitely. the uh, early mid period Metallica music, you know, fits very well for this. And the three, uh, you know, the Westmaster three were big Metallica fans. You know, the big satanic metal band Metallica. Yeah, you know, Metallica, of course, satanic metal. Drag them in, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, another interesting thing is that they talked to once again the occult expert. Uh, oh yeah. Who uh, helped put the nail in the coffin in 1994? who had no real degree, had a mail-order PhD. No qualifications. But the, the interesting thing, the man, actually, since bef since way before then, and still now, is this occult guy. Yeah, he's still, still, he's still, still um, working. He looks like he's 80, perhaps, or in his 70s. The man's still working. He's got drawers and drawers of occult goodness, uh, which he shares some yeah. uh, in the movie. And as it turns out, they showed footage from the early mid '80s of him on some other occult mania special of satanic, uh, you know, uh, satanic panic stuff, which again was not shown in the other two documentaries. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff. A lot of people uh, in the you know cast of characters, you could say, are in uh, this you know uh, new documentary. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it, you can't miss it if, if you were even a casual uh, follower of the, the two movies of the trial. And it shows uh, Eddie Vedder and Johnny Depp and Natalie Maines, um, who three of the, the biggest uh, celebrity supporters. Too bad they couldn't get Rollins in there. Uh, I was surprised yeah. actually that they didn't have Rollins involved because mm -hmm. in that was how I found out about the West Memphis Three. A lot of people found out about Rollins. Rollins. through Rollins, yeah, in uh, 2003. He did something he was never going to do, and he did an entire tour of Black Flag songs. Hasn't done it since. Um, only did it that one time, and talks uh, a lot about that tour in one of his books, Broken Summers. Yeah, Broken uh, Summers. Deals a lot with the year 2003 yeah. and the tour. It was that long ago. Yeah. Isn't that unbelievable? Like me, and, me and Mike were talking about how we, we saw the shows, and it's eight years. Wow. I it's, went to the one almost... in Boston and the one in New York. Yeah, yeah. It was great. 
I mean, I it was unbelievable. Like I said, I, you, you never thought he was going to do it. He he had pretty much said he would never, you know, he wouldn't. Well, do Keith Morris was involved too. Yes, that's definitely yeah. helped it. Uh, yeah. Keith Morris did his era songs, mm-hmm. yeah. and Rollins did his era songs, yeah. and it was it was fantastic. I, the, it was never released on DVD or anything, which no. is a damn shame. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and now it's making me want to seek out a, a bootleg of sorts There's for myself. Be there has to be something, else. exactly. And um, the uh, money, all the money, a good chunk of the money for that tour went to their defense. Uh, the album that Rollins put together, the, the you know the the Black Flag cover songs, Sanctuary Records. Yes, yes. Um, he, I read recently or around the time of the release of the West Memphis Three. He spent uh, almost a hundred grand on yeah. that record. And, a lot of heavy uh, yeah, yeah. people on it. It was not an easy undertaking, and um, you know, it's it's just unbelievable that all these things done over the years played a little part. I think adding up to to the release of these guys, and, and another thing in the documentary, everyone on their defense team from back then, um, in particular from the second documentary, the people who just kind of uprooted their lives and started the initial websites, they're all still there. Yeah, they're, they're still involved. They're all still involved, which I, I couldn't believe it. Um, you know, and the directors, Joe uh, Berlinger and Bruce Nofsky, they show them in like 93 and then now 2011. It's like they've all grown up together and grown older together. Yeah. It's just yeah. unbelievable. It, it almost warrants another movie in a sense. It, yeah. Maybe even, yeah, like... You know, maybe it might be too much for a, a fiction, a movie, fictional movie about it. But just the the story in itself, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd be curious to see uh, a good movie about this case, about the documentaries. Um, but I guess that's what the documentary itself exists for. You know, uh, with, with black metal and the whole uh, you know incidents in Norway with uh, Euronymous and you know the Count. Uh, there's been talk for a few years of, of a fictionalized movie of that, yeah. um, which thank God has never no, surfaced, least, and I don't think I don't think it's happening. It I could would. be wrong. I don't think this movie is ever happening. Um, you know, again, uh, the documentaries that are out there on it to me are enough. You know what I mean? There are there, there there's you know books that you know some of it's pretty books questionable mainly. right books mainly but yeah, not, yeah. Doc, I don't think the documentaries really no I mean but the story has been told is what I'm trying to say yeah. but if someone um, with a good vision and someone with knowledge were to undertake you know mo- uh, major motion pictures of these types of things you know of course the curiosity factor would be there for people like me and you to be like okay let's see what this is about Usually they end horribly, though. I mean, um, yeah. when people try to recreate things, you know, yeah. uh, like that 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 was that movie, that rock star movie that's supposedly loosely based on the guy who replaced Rob Halford. Oh, but, that was awful. Yeah, that's that's that that's a piece yeah, of crap. But garbage. then there there are ones that work out good. The Runaways movie supposedly is is extremely yeah. faithful to their yeah, story and good. and had Sherry Curry's blessing and sure. had Joan Jett's blessing and and is is it obviously a bit more of a sanitized story from what I understand. Yeah. Compared to what went down, but it at least got yeah. the blessings of, of the band members and the people who were there. Yeah, those those runaways are all a bunch of dirty hookers, probably. <laughs> I mean, God knows what else was going on. What else knows what's going on? But that, that movie wasn't bad. I mean, there's been talk of a Black Sabbath movie. There's been talk of a Motley Crue movie. I've been hearing for a long time, and you know, I don't know. Like, it's usually 
hit or miss 100%. Usually uh, leaning more on the miss side. Yeah, I would say more on the miss side. <laughs> I would, I'd like to see a Black Sabbath yeah. uh, dot film. I mean, mm, it's, it's Even a good documentary. It's far enough in the past where it's like you can start really thinking about doing a, a fictionalized... Drop or dramatized. No, dramatized. Right, exactly. You know, no, um, stuff like Motley Crue is only like a twenty-year, two-decade, couple right. decades. Right. There's yeah. um, it's it it hit the festival circuit. Um, Jack Osborne, Ozzy's son, did. There's a movie God, God bless Ozzy Osborne or something like that. There is yeah, a documentary I've about Ozzy. That, yeah. I understand there's a good deal of Sabbath in it, but it's primarily about Ozzy. You know, I, I want to check that out. Well, well there's that new Tony Iommi biography. Yes. Which I pre-ordered the minute I found out. Yes, about yes, it. yes. Where he had there he had this. Uh, in store where like thousands of people uh, yeah. showed up in California, I believe, and um, you know, I mean, yeah, the, the the time is right, I think, for stuff like this. Yeah. I mean, Jesus. The title of the book is like Tony Iommi, Iron Man, which Love I, it. I think is just Love it. sent chills up my spine. Oh yeah, I'm reading that book. I am reading that book. I can't um, wait to get it. Totally, totally. But uh, you know, getting a little bit off the path here. Um, you know, at least we, we are talking about documentaries and, and, and real life yeah. events. Um, the thing is, though, it's like I I love documentary films and I feel like ones like this, the whole Paradise Lost saga is an example of one that literally made a, a difference. Fine. Like they actually, yeah. the awareness. you know, it, it, it totally changed the game and changed their lives. And just I mean, it affected people so much. And it's nice to see that happen, you know? Um, it doesn't happen enough, right? I mean, documentary films, I mean, they're the big ones that we all know about, the Michael Moore stuff, but, you know, there's probably tons out there that I haven't seen or Mike hasn't seen that could be just as thought-provoking or maybe not as sensational and could also change lives. So it's like, I don't know, I just feel, uh, hopefully, because of movies like this, um, when it comes to, like, you know, criminals or wrongly convicted criminals or true crime cases it just kind of like you said it raises people's awareness to things like this you know yeah. um, but this is a rarity this is this is one of the most to me one of the most sensational uh, true crime cases in, in quite a while yeah. Netflix streaming is good for documentaries because mm -hmm. you know if you have the Netflix streaming service you know maybe a documentary that you might necessarily not rent or something like that mm -hmm. suddenly oh this looks interesting right like, let me check this out you know, for example, like a lot, a lot of a lot of things about food, it mm -hmm. seems. To yeah, be, there's a lot of those going on. You know mm -hmm. about right. GMO and mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, just kind of got kicked Monsanto off by the uh, the, the super sides. Me kind of kicked that off yeah. about five years ago, totally. Right. And um, you know, Michael Moore. I don't know what his next topic is. I, I have to say, I do generally like yeah, a lot of his sure. movies. I don't always like his opinions on things, but um, you know. He there's another example of someone who raised people's awarenesses on on a multitude of things, good or bad, you know. But I uh, I wonder, you know, if if the filmmakers even realize. Well, hopefully they do. Like you know, they themselves for even choosing, you know, not knowing 1993, 94, like how all this would roll out, like. How they feel, you know what I'm saying? Like I'd be curious to read a little more about about their feelings on it, and 
you know, it must feel pretty good to know that you, you helped someone get out of jail. Yeah, I imagine that probably as the release date, the official release date mm-hmm. for this comes around, there's going to be more press and more interviews. Right. And I'm assuming that eventually there'll be like the, yeah, there's still sweet, ha- like mm-hmm. three DVD yeah. box set well, with, yeah, yeah. with like the extras and behind <laughs> the scenes. And I guarantee you there's a behind the scenes. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a screener. There's there's no extras on this. There's just yeah. it just starts uh, this DVD. Um, and uh you know, uh, I was kind of thinking there would have been some type of official interview with the three of them on some on a news program, but that hasn't really happened yet either. No, but also no. once again, the factual release date's still in the right. It could January, be, yeah, it could be in the works. ramping up the press junket, exactly. you know, and getting all that stuff together. You exactly, know, so that stuff's probably resurfacing in the next few months. Um, you know, last week I, I was at Enchantments mm-hmm. with Jacqueline, um, Kat, and, and David. Mm-hmm. And uh, David um, told me that uh, Damien Eccles actually came to the shop, which is pretty cool. And uh, you, you you learn uh, from from watching. Well, I didn't remember this uh, that Damien Eccles' wife was a New Yorker from yeah. from Brooklyn right. and moved from New York to West Memphis. I actually either I yeah. forgot that or I didn't know that at all. I didn't know that until tonight. And it's very. I mean, we don't know this, but it, it could be very possible they're living in New York again. So yeah, I think I said that he was living here, but I, I could possibly be talking on my ass. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't know. Definitely. I mean, but the fact that he was at, at a shop not too long ago, yeah. and that the woman, his his wife, is a New Yorker, maybe they moved back here. Who knows? Yeah. I could see not wanting to live in. in oh, I we just mentioned this after the movie before we started taping. I. I would disown my uh, my statehood if that's if that's a, if that's something you can do. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that's I would certainly do that, and I don't know, man. I would hopefully try not to let it taint me too much as far as justice and law. Um, I don't know. I think one or two, or all three of them are destined to r- hopefully write a hell of a book, or you know, or, or two yeah. uh, on their lives because Lord knows other people have written on their lives, and you know. I imagine that's in the, in the cards. Sure, you know, sure. Especially, it seems like Damien Eccles is smart you know, guy. Yeah, he's kind of you know smart, one of the smart, you know, smarter. Yeah, possibly. yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, say what you want, whatever about like Eddie Vedder or Natalie Maines or Johnny Depp, three people, you know, pop people, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you didn't really see anybody. I mean, you know, if, if that's who's rallying towards you, how can you how can you damn them? You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. You know, you don't, and, and Rollins too, of course. It's like these guys are probably thrilled. You know, I mean, that that people of of this kind of stature got behind them and and never faltered. You know, yeah. how can you how can you bash that? You know, I've always been a big Johnny Depp fan, hmm. and and earlier on, I, I'm not a big Pearl Jam fan, mm-hmm. nor mm-hmm. I've always kind of Dixon thought Chicks. Eddie Vedder was like mm-hmm. you know kind of like a. Cheesy, or whatever. Well, one could argue he yeah. walked into quite a great right. situation, and uh, you but know, in his defense, I gotta say that <laughs> I've, I've, I've grown to appreciate him a little bit more. Yeah, sure. Like, I man. like some of his other stuff that he's done, mm-hmm. and, and he, he seems like a genuine person. Yeah, yeah. I have no knowledge at all. No, no, we have no personal. No, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know. I don't, can't even say I know a guy who knows him. Nope, nope we don't even, even know that nope. exactly. And I don't know anything about the Dixie Chicks at all. No, other than so. their. Uh, Natalie Maines, you know, trash talk Bush a couple of years back, and, and that's the only. Had all, that's, that's that's yeah, good. and I don't even know if I can name a song to no. be honest. Um, yeah. That's how in tune we are with country, and um, well, that <laughs> pop country, country right? That exactly. No good. But I know she's famous. Yeah. And and I know she she did quite a bit for these guys. So, 
you know, I mean, it's it's just unbelievable. You know, the, to me, that's the power of the documentaries. Bottom line, you know. So yeah, this is like kind of like a a continuation of the Halloween theme, which I started last week with Down at Enchantments. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a pretty good discussion about the occult and you know Wicca and all this. Like, uh, which is ironic that there's. A, uh, a quote unquote expert involved in this film <laughs> on, in their prosecution who's a satanic occult expert <laughs> and you brought up the, the fact that the, the FBI stated uh-huh. there's some like minuscule amount of actual it's, cases okay. that involve the occult even, even with going back to the mid early mid 80s I think I even read this in a book or two that I have in my collection either I don't know if it's zero or one percent. Like, there's pretty much almost never been any convictions on any of the satanic panic cases. I'm sh- there have been convictions that had possibly some kind of uh, satanic bent or the killer, blah, blah, blah. But right. as far as actually being tied to a cult or group or coven, it's it hasn't it doesn't happen it's never happened the actually. only two things that come to mind mm-hmm. and and this is once again a sensational like connection to satanism mm-hmm. is the ricky castle murders yes on long island right and richard, richard ramirez on California. right mm-hmm. but neither one of those were actually no they were not part of a, a true co- it wasn't anything uh, they were both deeply disturbed drugged yeah, out dudes right, that's were, what they were into like Slayer exactly and, you know, they, he was not a me- neither were me- uh, you know Ricky Casey was not a member of the Church of Satan uh, to my knowledge Richard Ramirez was not a member of the Church of Satan um, it, it was it had nothing to do with uh, a, a, a group you know uh, sacrificing people on an altar in the woods it had nothing to do with anything like that and uh, the, the initial cases of the satanic panic that satanic panic the, was it Jessica remembers or whatever Michelle remembers yeah, yeah. But it was all, proved to be completely made up made up and exactly you know, it, 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 hey, it makes for great true crime books, which are loaded with, with crap, just fun to read. makes for some great documentaries and, you know, TV movie of the weeks and movies. But other than that, it's fantasy. It's Disney for yeah. the most part, you know? Well, the other thing, too, is like since Satanism itself is a kind of an inversion of Christianity, like mm-hmm. it, does, it exists within the context of Christianity. Right. The, it can, an argument can be made that the repression of Christianity creates this interest in Satanism. Yes. It's not like they spring up independently oh, yeah. without war with well, each other. Well, here's the thing. They say, well, if you're going to have God, you have to have the devil. If you believe in the devil, you have to believe in God. Both both sides say that, right? right. Um, I've heard Eric from Watain say that, and I've heard preachers say that, right? Yep. And I almost feel like uh, hardcore Christians and religious types, they need it. They need the devil. They need... Even fake Satanists, like, uh, you know, the average uh, kid wearing a black shirt and, you know, painting his nails black. They need that to keep themselves in business, so to speak. They need something to rally against. They need uh, an adversary, you know. Um, I don't know. I just feel like there's just such a wealth of misinformation on what really is the occult and what really is uh, Satanism that... That may, it may never change. I mean, it's 2012 almost, and, and and people still cite the nonsense of the Satanic Panic era, and people still call themselves occult experts with no knowledge of the occult. So, may, I mean, maybe it'll change one day, but 
Probably not. Yeah. And then there's also the whole phenomenon of the you know alleged satanic ritual abuse, where the <laughs> satanic ideas, yeah, satanic motifs were implanted. Yeah, I've read. Like I said, I've read some great books that were touted as true, and probably none of it was true. Um, and there was a, in the mid late nineties. I we I we talked about this not on the the uh, podcast. I was HBO miniseries with James Woods. Oh yeah. Uh, the name is uh, I hate when this freaking yeah, happens I, I on this podcast, yeah. but it was uh, James Woods uh, starring about the uh, pretty much the birth of the Satanic Panic right. stuff. Awesome miniseries movie thing. Uh, I got it from Netflix. The name is going to escape me, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to, to to hash it out and get it out to you. But that you can get on Netflix and you can rent it and buy it. That's really cool. And of course, yeah, the ending of that shows that pretty much none of these things took place. Um, being that it's also almost Halloween, uh, there's a great book called The Halloween Machine, which talks about something somewhat similar. Uh, the myth of the razor blades and the apples, the myth of the poison candy, which um, is based on a made-up story that appeared in, I don't know if it was New Yorker, New Yorker magazine in the early 70s, that people took and ran with and created a folklore about people poisoning children. Like, again, reported cases, like two, ever. Like, the, another thing that is a yeah. huge myth that was actually perpetrated. There, there was one case in the early 70s where a man did take his children's Halloween candy and poison and kill his children. One case. There was one case of this. But, again, it was just kind of, uh, you know take it and run with it kind of thing where it turned into there's hundreds and thousands of cases like this when in reality there isn't you know well it's interesting that you we point that out too because the phenomenon of the snuff film mm -hmm. you know is like another or almost like an urban legend really pretty much doesn't yeah. exist I mean well it may exist um, but not nearly on the scale as we were led to believe many years ago. Right. And um, now this this ties us into our original intent of mm -hmm. the podcast because yes. we, we were going to talk about um, you know, Roger Watkins and Last House on a Dead End Street initially mm -hmm. as our sole focus of this, <laughs> this, this episode. But then we had the good fortune of being able to score this screener. Right. Yes. So, you you know, we, we took a couple hours and reviewed that <laughs> and then just added that on. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, basically, uh, Roger Watkins, a name that should be a household name yeah. in filmmaking, but sadly was lost into obscurity, mm -hmm. made... You know, pretty pretty much the one, the, probably the one film that you know that may may have helped uh, start the fire of, of a snuff film existing. Although there's there, the movie has somewhat of has a narrative to it, and there's a bit there's more to this movie yeah. obviously than the scene in particular that we're talking about towards the end. Um, First, let's get before we get into that. Let's right. get like a background. So the movie is Last House on a Dead End Street, which was not filmed as Last House on a Dead right. End Street. It was uh, Cuckoo Clocks of Hell. Yes, in uh, upstate New York, Oneonta, I believe. Or, yeah, some SUNY college. Uh, yes, yeah. and again, it was made in seventy one, seventy two, during Christmas break, I believe. Uh, Christmas break of seventy two. Um, Led to believe, led to uh, uh, we were led to believe it was a student film. It was not a student film. Um, it was a very low budget film, but it was had nothing to do with any type of curriculum. No. It was a hundred percent Roger Watkins. He was maybe a little, a slightly past college age yeah, at the time. Definitely. Um, one of the professors at the campus is in the movie and was a friend of his. 
But again, not not a student film uh, as many thought it was. But over it the did years. employ some. It was yes, all non actors. It was all non actors. Right, right. And like past. But to call a student film yeah. was, is is incorrect. It wasn't like a senior project or something. Like um, that. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> and also <sighs> when the film finally uh, surfaced in the later seventies in in the at at the grindhouses, um, a lot of People had no knowledge of who was in this cast because yeah. all the names are changed. Yep. The name of the director is wrong. Victor the name G of the actors are wrong. Victor, Victor, uh, Victor Janos, yes. Yeah. Um, so, of course, again, pre-internet, obviously, just led to just great stories about what the hell this movie is, who made it, what became of the people that made it. Yeah. And it really wasn't until the internet age yeah, exactly. that people kind of did a lot of homework and... One of the, um, what do you call, underground uh, film magazines kind of did their homework and put two and two together and were, was able to track, track Roger Watkins down, who uh, was a in porn for many years. Yeah, um, he worked with Jamie Gillis. Yeah, he, he made a number of porn movies as a director. Uh, from what I understand, was in one he or two. Fucking, right, like he, he was in the porn, uh, he was never a porn actor himself um, but he directed and produced and wrote quite a few um, some which are looked upon as supposedly you know I've never seen a movie in particular called Her Name Was Lisa it's supposed to be this fantastic porno film um, it has a very dark kind of story and um, the interesting thing about uh, the character which he plays in Last House on Dead End Street is that it's a disgruntled pornographer and this is it, he he had nothing to do with porn at the time yet. No, it was a story. No. It was his life went on to mirror yeah. this character in this movie. It's unbelievable in a way. Um, he didn't become some crazy killer, or, or don't get me wrong. Uh, he didn't go on to do what the character in the movie does, but he fell on some very hard times in his post porn career and made a living in porn and was not happy about it. Um, no, no. And it's just the guy around the, the early 2000s, uh, a now sadly defunct DVD company, Barrel Entertainment, um, put out the DVD, uh, the double disc of uh, Last House on Dead End Street, along with a wealth of extras and a great booklet that tells this entire story about the film and what Roger Watkins was doing and uh, that there are different cuts of the movie because yeah. the movie in actuality was over two, uh, like a much longer uh, cut initially existed. Yeah. The, origi the original release version, the one that made it to the theaters and its limited release is only 75 minutes long. Yes, it was short, right. Yeah. But he shot a lot of footage. Like, I'm trying to remember the exact time of his initial, initial length of footage. I think it's almost something like three hours yeah, long. I know, um, I've seen that, that very rare DVD collection. Mm -hmm. Do you have that? You have. A yeah, I have. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I don't. I slept on that. Ah, uh, yes. See, that's like the thing. Four hundred dollars. What's well, no, What's sad is that I I thought Barrel was going to be around forever. Yeah, I figured I'd always be able to get that. You know, <laughs> and now it's gone uh, Along with the, the Necromantic one and two mm -hmm. and Scram and a few other movies. Yeah, they're all good luck buying these on eBay, people. Unfortunately, um, the the most expensive one is Last House on Dead End yeah. Street, actually. A sealed copy is, yeah, almost it's in the neighborhood of $400. An expensive. open copy could run you $200. Yeah. I bought it for $22, yeah. I believe. Um, but um, 
it's it's kind of a sad story because he well he he died he he's, he he's died dead, yeah. in uh, 2007 right around the time um, when uh, you know the, the, the excitement uh, over the movie had kind of ran its course uh, the DVD was I believe by 07 uh, still in print or just about to be out of print. And there were talks of him doing a, a sequel, actually. Yeah, like a legitimate film with like backing, mm -hmm. you know, like some some studio backing. So. Right, and um, he had gone on to be like a like a cult hero along in the underground, you know, horror world. And uh, a lot of people were really wanting a comeback and looking forward to a comeback. And uh, like a lot of people of that era. Um, you know, it just was not meant to be. Um, uh, one of the books that, that that changed my life that also tells quite a bit about Roger Watkins, uh, uh, Sleazord Express, uh, written by uh, Bill Landis. He passed away a few years ago. People were looking forward to more books from him. Um, uh, and just, of course, uh, two weeks ago, David Hess died as well at 69. Uh, and just as he was about to possibly, from what I understand, do a work in some kind of sequel to uh, House on the Edge of the Park with uh, Deodato directing, uh, which is pretty interesting because his character dies at the at the end. But um, getting back to Roger Watkins, on the extras, uh, the, the extra disc on Last House on Dead End Street, there's some very candid home video of oh, him. Oh, the, 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 yes. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's just really weird. Like, yeah. You see that guy. You see the the Victor Janos. You see the his like life unraveling. Basically. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, I don't know. I, ho hopefully, I feel like someone like this man's life is is ripe again for a film or for some type of book. Yeah. Um. You know, uh, looking at his uh, his IMDb page, uh, another two other movies that I'm familiar with the titles. Uh, corruption, Midnight Heat, again, supposedly these very iconic early '80s porn films. When porn films were films, um, yeah, it, was, it was it was pre-Gonzo. You know, yeah. when they had a script, they yeah. had a plot. So these are all hardcore films. Yeah, they're all hardcore. Uh, and the, the, the director name he went under most of them was Richard Mailer, M-A-H-L-E-R. And um, you know, you know, like we said, his real name was Roger Watkins, and he filmed uh, Last House on Dead End Street. As uh, Victor, Victor Janos, um, yeah, I mean, there is some some interesting material on the internet about the guy and some great interviews and where he you can you know learn about how certain movie houses, much like uh, Last House on the Left, which is where the the movie you know distributors over the back in the day would name movies themselves if they didn't like it, um, yeah. especially the European movies if they thought the name was ridiculous or didn't make sense which explains why some movies from Italy that I enjoy have five names. Yeah. Um, this movie had three names. Uh, it was called The Fun House, it was called Cuckoo Clocks of Hell, and it was called Last House on Dead End Street. The main reason it was called Last House on Dead End Street was because of the success of Last House on the Left. Uh, another movie, like I said, which was some theater owners cut it themselves. <laughs> imagine that now, yeah. imagine that. Yeah, like, yeah, I can't even imagine that. It was yeah. like the Wild West back then. Yes, I know, God, you know, what a great time. Yeah. Yeah, very little accountability. Yeah. No one really knew what everyone was doing, you know? <laughs> and, and, and movies, big movies, they opened regionally. Um, yeah. Particularly the horror movies. Uh, if they opened in New York, 
They didn't open in every city, every state. They opened just in New York. And then maybe next week, two, three weeks, they open in L.A. That happens now with the smaller movies. But, you know, it was like one house, one theater. You know what I'm saying? Back yeah. then, for a movie, that was fairly decently budgeted. Um, that was just how it was back then. You know, it was... Things were newer, you know? Um, and, of course, New York City was the hub to see these movies back when we had our 42nd, 42nd Street. Street. Yeah. Um, and it's weird. It, it took certain movies several years to, to hit the screen, and this is one of them. This movie was showing in the mid-late 70s. It was shot in the early 70s. Um, I also believe Roger Watkins wasn't even aware uh, initially that it was even hitting theaters. It was, like, gone. The movie was gone. Um, it's just unbelievable how things happened back then. Um, you know, I've read interviews with David Hess recently after he passed where he himself recounts, you know, where if he was in Manhattan, you know, in the late 70s, and of course certain theaters showed Last House on the Left for months back then, especially, you know, maybe around Halloween time or whatever, or double features, people would see him on the street and get scared. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because they, because they thought he was that guy. <laughs> Although, if you know a little bit, you know, about your David Hess... Uh, he's not yeah, too far off the mark as far as the intensity guy. of the. Yeah, he yeah. kind of was that guy. He wasn't a killer <laughs> rapist, but was he as intense as Krug? Yeah, pretty intense guy. Um, if you watch the extras on House on the Edge of the Park, you can see just how intense he gets because the interviewer uh, for the extras segment brings up the rape scene, which kicks off House on the Edge of the Park, and pretty much says, "Oh, isn't that, that that's your wife, isn't it?" And apparently, I guess Mr. Hess didn't want us to know that that was his wife and gives him the dirtiest look I've, I've ever seen in a DVD extra. And it gets very uncomfortable for a few moments. And then, of course, it, it, it changes to a different type of uh, topic. So that's something to check out. You can still get that DVD from uh, Media Blaster Shriek Show. It is not out of print, thankfully. Um, On this last tour over in Europe, I scored a, uh, the three-disc 30th anniversary uh, version of that from um, one of the dudes in the band Drainland. Gave nice. Me. Very cool. But I, I can only watch it on this Mac Pro. <laughs> ah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, whatever region. You're all region players. Yeah, I know, so. I know. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the cool thing, I mean, a lot of great stuff does eventually make it to region one, yeah. thank God. But then there's some great stuff out there. Um, you know, Horrorhound has devoted articles about it that has yet to see the light of day in America. And Last, uh, Last House on the Left is is one of the kings of, of extras uh, as far as the different regions of DVDs go. I have uh, three uh, Last House on the Left DVDs. I have a, a UK Anchor Bay double disc, which has great extras. I have the original... Uh, late 90s early 2000s MGM one which was a 999 DVD with tons of great extras and then in 2009 uh, MGM reissued a new one to cash in on the remake with the stupidest cover I've ever seen which makes no sense to the movie it's almost like a giallo cover with a glove on a girl's face oh, yeah. stupid yeah. stupid artwork for a great movie um, but again that has new extras in it as well uh, I guess much like you know Jaws, there's about five to oh, yeah. eight DVDs of that with different extras. Yeah. Dawn of the Dead. And oh my God, Dawn of the Dead. Or and Night Evil of, Dead. Dead. Evil, Evil Dead. Dead to me yeah. is another king of the let's milk the fans for all they're worth. And, you know, well, the reason why Night of the Living Dead is that because there's no goddamn copyright yeah, on it. Yeah, it's all public right. domain at this yeah. point. Yeah. You, there could be a hundred more, We could put one out if we, we could. <laughs> if we If we wanted to make a Night of the Living Dead DVD, we could. And not get arrested. So that's pretty... Well, there's that other one. I have a copy of it. It might have been one of the first DVDs I ever bought, actually. Mm -hmm. is um, They have this 
footage that's shot that has like Michael Madsen in it. Oh yes, that was when Russo, uh, the man, ooh, don't get me wrong, huge part in the canon history of the dead films. He wrote uh, the scripts. Yeah. Well, he got it in his head to put new scenes in yep, with the old footage and colorize yep. and yeah, that that did not work out too well for the fan. I a lot of people really hated. I bought that as well. Yeah. Actually, I bought that on VHS. Like one of the first ones I think. And I that's bought. one of the first DVDs you bought. Um, the first DVD I did buy was actually Mario Bava's last movie, Shock, on DVD. Um, I was I think I got my first DVD player in two thousand, unfortunately. Um, and I bought it at a Sam Goody. I just I don't I don't I I knew, you know I I knew who Mario Bava was obviously, but for some reason. I was like, I'm gonna grab this DVD. It was like, a, it was decently priced, and I still have it to this day. And it's still in print. It again has different artwork and stuff, or it, it might have been transferred over to Blue Underground because uh, Bill Lustig, the guy who directed uh, Maniac and many other movies, was the head honcho at Anchor Bay back in the day when they were putting out all the great stuff, and then left the company and started to reissue all the stuff that he brought in, the uh, Argento movies and a lot of the other cool Italian movies and horror movies, and Blue Underground to this day still puts out. Great stuff. Anchor Bay has kind of slowed down a bit with the old stuff. Concentrates more on new stuff. Yeah, some of it very good, actually, in my opinion. Uh, some of it maybe not as good. They just make too many goddamn Evil Dead movies. Anchor Bay, TBDs, <laughs> too many. Um, but getting back to uh, Last House on Dead End Street, if you have not seen it, it, it's very hard to to just kind of say why it's about blah 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 or it's this kind of movie. I mean. It's not for the casual horror fan. It's not even for the casual movie fan. No, you say? definitely not. You, you you have to be pretty deeply into the genre mm -hmm. of horror films. Right. You have to have a background in like seventies horror specifically. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. It, because it has that sort of sleazy, low budget, mm -hmm. grindhouse vibe to it. Yeah. But yeah. it's funny because I mean, one very strange scene in the movie is the uh, there's a scene with blackface. Yeah. Uh, and, and a whip and I mean a lot of it uh, the movie does follow somewhat of a narrative because it is a story about a disgruntled ex-pornographer looking for the next level yeah, well, so he gets speak. out of jail he gets out of jail yeah, exactly Watt, sorry Watkins right. plays Watkins plays like um, he plays he stars in the film mm -hmm. so in the beginning of the film he's just a pornography uh, director mm -hmm. or filmmaker he gets out of jail and his mission is to get even yes. with everyone who mm -hmm. fucked him over. Yes. And that's really the plot of the film. Uh -huh. And then, you know, he starts shooting these films. And then it, it just keeps escalating and getting more Sicker and more and stranger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, everyone in the movie was not an actor. Most of it were students at the college. No one got paid, pretty much. From my, if you watch the documentary, maybe, oh, yeah. well, no one got paid. No, no, um, uh very, I mean, very small budget, but I tell you, it has it has scary, disturbing scenes, and it, it's. I think it's in that sense. A lot of people say that it's not a great film, and that it's it's. Some people think it's a horrible movie. Some people, but other people they view it for what it is. I mean, he was very young when he made it. It's made for very little money. It has a tremendous movie-worthy story behind it, in my opinion. So does this man's life. When you look at it in that context, I think it's fucking fantastic, actually. And the, the eeriness about how his own life went on to yeah. very closely mirror this his first film. It's just 
very strange. Yeah, that's definitely uncanny. Yeah. Know? There's also like a sort of a Manson yes. uh, influence. Yes. You know, even even with like, cause, you know, the Manson family used to, well, Charlie came out of jail, mm-hmm. you know, and then he developed this following of young girls. Right, and right. Then there was the filming of the alleged man, well, the snuff films. They yes. shot films yes. of murders out on the, out on the ranch. Mm-hmm. So there's like a little bit of that influence with in the film too, where he's, he is kind of this Manson style Manson character. figure, exactly. Um... Interesting thing of note um, on the extras. It's sad. I don't. Netflix had this. It was on Netflix for years, guys. I, if you missed it, I feel bad. What the, the uh, la, yeah, Last House on Dentistry. I don't think it's on there anymore. Maybe it's on for streaming. You could have rented both discs actually at one point. Um, there's an interview with him on um, not the Larry King show. I forget what talk show it is. Oh God, one of the uh, talk, guy who's hosting who's still alive today. Actually, I can't think of yeah. his name. The show was on up until I think the early '90s, and uh, he, the movie is, is Cuckoo Clocks of Hell. Like it's not even called. It's, yeah, he, it's, he's talking about the movie as Cuckoo Clocks of Hell, so it's kind of interesting. And um, you know, he was a big horror fan. Uh, you know, he, he he talks about that his love of classic horror and Lugosi and Karloff and, and Hammer films and things like that. And um, I don't know. It's just it's just so strange. It's like. Uh, I'm sure out there right now, I mean, there are horror films being made every five seconds, right? Yeah, I mean, these days, there's yeah. a tremendous underground horror movement. Um, horror conventions are extremely well, you know, attended. I know I've been going to them for over 10 years. Um, there's, there's no dip in the interest of horror. But back then, it, it must have been, you know, you must have felt like a pioneer in a way, you know? I mean, if you were making these type of movies with this type of violence level, not knowing who the hell was going to see it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It was, it was shadowy, more yeah. shadowy. Yeah, I mean, you know, one can only wonder, you know, what's going on out there now. I mean, it's just in this age where we feel like we've seen everything, where I welcome movies from 30, 40 years ago and get excited about them because sure. I feel like I've seen everything. You know, it's just, it's just, it kind of makes you almost hopeful in a way and it makes you sad in a way because it's like that era is gone. But in a way it makes you hopeful because... If this guy was able to, to do it, granted, he didn't reap the rewards for the most part for many years later, and you could also argue that he never reaped the rewards, no. um, then almost, you know, anyone could do it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The other thing, too, is it was a lot harder to actually make a film back in the 70s. Yes. Because now it's like, you know, you can shoot hours upon hours with digitally mm-hmm. and on a computer. You can yep. edit the whole film. Hmm. Back then, you had to get film. You had oh, to actually man. get a lab to cut it in. The editing processes of the like old a, films. Like know, a, I'm a big literally. extras guy. I watch yeah. any movie I like. I tend to watch the extras I'm making of, and especially uh, the '70s movies. And, and when they, you know, some of the small horror ones where they talk about the editing process, in particular, also Last House on the Left. It was, you know, it was uh, Craven's first film. They, they, they kind of didn't even know what they were doing oh, actually yeah. when they were editing the movie yeah. they didn't know about continuity that's that's continuity. one of the things they talk about in the book by uh, David Solskin uh, The Last House on the Left book Which they didn't know they were supposed to have a continuity person <laughs> <laughs> and they were it was not an easy task to make that movie and put that together so I imagine this movie where it was even I mean again there is a narrative but at some point in this movie I'm going to say this narrative gets thrown out the window yeah. in favor of just scenes of bizarre set pieces, I guess, you know? Editing this was probably no picnic either, especially since, from what I understand, there were several hours of film. Yeah. 
Definitely. Definitely. The, uh, yeah, the other thing too is just that the fact, the, the people who made films back then, especially of this intensity, like something like this, uh, you know, it was a quote-unquote horror film because it's really more about crime than mm. horror. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like a hybrid of some of the sensibilities in the 70s of like, um, you know, Taxi Driver. Yes, um, absolutely. And that kind of thing. He might not even think, he might not have even been go- like, you know, oh, making this horror picture. He might not have even been in that mind frame. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's very kind of artsy, kind of intense guy. If you, if, if you are able to stumble across interviews with him on YouTube or if you're able to track down the DVD and watch the extras, I don't know if he was trying to be horror, so to speak, as if not to just make a statement or... Right. You know what I mean? Um, and the, he was... He admittedly, he, he was high on drugs throughout sure. the entire process. Um, the thing is, it's so much like yeah, Abel Ferrara. Too, yeah, you know? it's, it's just, like, wow. But Abel Ferrara somehow managed to have a career, and Roger yeah, Watkins' yeah, right, career exactly. never really came together. I know, it's sad. Even sad. though Abel Ferrara dipped into the world of pornography, too. <laughs> didn't he actually, didn't he, didn't he fuck I believe he did, yeah. I mean, I, I've heard crazy <laughs> stories about him. Well, you know, Nick, our friend Nick, mm-hmm. his, his dad's. Buddies it's his him. boy. Oh my god! Yeah, that's unbelievable. From back in the day, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, seventies and all that. I mean, that, that this Abel Ferrara had was able to be with uh, Adrian Argento for years. God damn this guy! Unbelievable. The luck this man has had. No, but um, <laughs> you know, the thing is, again, these are people of their time. You know, the seventies. Come on, probably the greatest. Era ever. Films, I mean, yeah. whatever. You of course taking nothing away from the classic classics. You're you're gone with the winds. You're whatever's. I admittedly know very little about that era of film, and I consider myself a film guy. Maybe I'm not, according to some people, for even making that statement. But to me, <laughs> where to, to me, one of the most important film eras is, is the 1970s, late 60s to 1970s. Yes. I mean, I, the Midnight Cowboy, Straw Dogs. Even Last House on the Left, which a lot of people would not put next to those two movies. It's just, man, the Deliverance, uh, Taxi Driver. The early works of all the big guns, in yep. a way. You yep. know what I'm saying? Scorsese. You know? Yeah. Um, Steven Spielberg was around then. Yeah. He didn't really make all of his bones till about 80, early 80s. But he was a, he, he knew those guys then. You know right. what I'm saying? Right. Um, his first duel. I mean, that's. I mean, oh, it's yeah, not duel. grindhouse, but it's yeah. it's edgy. Yeah. And it has that. And Jaws is, is edgy. It has that. Set, it. Absolutely. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Um, you know, he didn't get as street as as Coppola and Scorsese and and, and some of his, his buddies did, and obviously neither did George Lucas. But these, these guys all knew each other, and they were all around for each other's beginnings. You know. Well, well there was that that style of film that came out like Friends of Eddie Coyle mm-hmm. um, you know just like that 70s noir totally and then also with cop realistic you know anti-heroes like no one's really good no Freakin, one's really bad Freakin's Freakin, early movies you know. um, John Borman um, oh, man fantastic book to read um, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls read that book Talks all about this entire era. It is fucking fantastic. Another great book to read about this era. The kid stays in the picture, and the mo- and the, the documentary. Movie, yeah. Watch that documentary about right. Robert Evans, um, and th- there's also a book as well. 
Uh, but Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Psh, you're going to love that book, Mike. It's a great book. Also, uh, you know, like the, the comic Criminal, mm -hmm. the, you know, the Brubaker yes. comic. You know, there's always those features at the end mm -hmm. that, that tell you about, tell you about all of his what source might have influenced the yes. Yeah. Oh, totally. You know, I mean, that's why I found out about Friends of Eddie Coyle. Like mm -hmm. I read this, you know, <laughs> review of it basically, and then I ended up watching it. It was like one of the best movies. You know, one of my favorite films at this point. You know, with a, an aging uh, Robert Mitchum. <laughs> you know, um, really, really good set in Boston. It doesn't turn out good for anybody oh, in that yeah. movie. You know, oh, it's just like a dark ending for everyone you know yeah and it's funny I mean uh, s certain movies that are looked on fondly now were considered crap back then or yeah. just you know trash um, and you know a lot of people will say well you know trash plus 30 years doesn't necessarily mean a great film but I just I don't know I just I feel like it's just a certain uh, I don't know about if the term is warmth or just a certain vibe I'll get even from a bad movie of that era where I'll still enjoy it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's because things are so different now as far as uh, movies go or mainstream movies go that, you know, seeing something so edgy and crazy that's from years ago gets you very nostalgic about that time, even if you weren't even around for that time. Yeah. Well, one of the things, too, is like these days, just working in the independent film world, mm -hmm. You know, there's there's a it's it's a lot easier financially and technologically to make a film. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people who yeah. have good technical abilities, but there's no um, creative element to it. Back in the day, back then, it was an obstacle, almost an unsurmountable obstacle to yeah. even make the film. Mm -hmm. So someone like you know your Roger Watkins, your your Abel Ferraras. They somehow were able to get the, get the ball over the over the net, you know, with everything. And there, but there were the limitations of the technology, and maybe not good actors, mm. no time, having to do things on the off to hours illegally. As a matter of fact, illegally. Um, when Fulci shot some of those exterior scenes in Zombie in New York, all that was one hundred percent illegal. There's a couple of that no that bridge, comments. the bridge scene, Zombie, nope, completely illegal. Um, a lot of the uh, the New York exterior movies, or a lot of the Italian movies, where it actually is New York, because a lot of them it's not New York; it just looks like New York. All illegal. <laughs> um, yeah. Like uh, in, in in Argento's Inferno, that there are New York exteriors. Those might have been legal. Although they might, I'm not sure about that. I do know Fulci's were illegal because I've read about it and I've seen the documentaries about it. Um, I think that's that's awesome. You know, um, if you can make a great movie. And actually get it shot and not be shut down by the police without for having no permits, then more power to you. I think that's great. It's like booking a show in, in a legal spot, you know, and being able to finish it without it getting shut down. Yeah, I've never done anything like that. Before. I know. I mean, I've been... I've, it's funny. There was a very short-lived club in, in Brooklyn, in Park Slope, right where near where the Bell House is, uh, that was open one night. And uh, it was like a Candiria. It was like in the late 90s. The show didn't happen because they had no, like the club opened with no permits. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they had like a month's worth of shows booked, that whole club calendar. Not one show happened. It was, it was grand opening, was grand closing. Wow. Yeah. So I can't remember the name of, of that club though, but it was like 98, 99. Supposed to have a whole month of shows booked in Brooklyn, Whoosh, nothing. nothing. Well, that, that was the case with a lot of places. I mean, even even up, up until recently, the last 10 years, like out in Bushwick, there was 
a bunch of different spaces that I choose. Yeah, little like, pop-up spots. I almost feel like Asheron is, is an illegal club, but I probably isn't. Um, it just it just seems like it's just it seems like it should be. It should. However, yeah. they they have a bar. Yeah, and, yeah. Know. They gotta have something yeah. somewhere, right? I mean, yeah. it just it looks like it's just somebody happens to be renting this out. Oh, here's a show. You know, here you go. Yeah. Because there's no proper PA really. I no. mean, it's you know it's there is a rustic. PA. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Speaking of Asheron, this past weekend you played. Yes, uh, um, my band, The Last Stand, played uh, with Mouthpiece and Youth for Today, the secret show, which of course. By the time Friday, Saturday rolled around, it wasn't that much of a secret. But uh, they, uh, Youth Today and Mouthpiece were part of a CMJ show in the afternoon at Santos in New York. But they played with a bunch of like rap groups and weird <laughs> groups and uh, what well, Kylesa played. And it was a very strange bill, which was a big turnoff to a lot of the hardcore fans. Sure. And pissed some people off because they're like, okay, Youth Today waits... 20-something years to play New York and this is the show they're playing and it's not even all ages and a lot of feathers were ruffled as they say, right? So it turns out they want to do another show um, and they want it to be an all ages show and they want it to be the small club. Um, my band, The Last Stand, uh, we provided the, the back line and we were, you know, one of only three bands playing and Mouthpiece was going to do it. They were going to do a double duty show and of course Youth Today does. There couldn't be any flyers for this show. Uh, there couldn't be any Facebook pages for the show. But again, by the time Friday rolled around, people just kind of put it yeah, all on Facebook. Exactly. And for fear to me of no one knowing about the show, I myself told a whole bunch of people about it a few days before because, come on, I mean, what are you going to do? You, yeah, know? you have to tell someone. Someone has to find out about it. <laughs> I mean, a secret show is cool and all, but yeah. if it's 100% secret, yeah. then there'll be two people there, right? Exactly. There'll be the bands. Um, so yeah, the doors wound up opening after 11 o'clock. We went on at midnight. We were supposed to go on about 11.30. And... People, it was a good turnout. Um, you know, people came out. I just, I just question some of the people in the audience, Mike Hill. Let me tell you, I just, I, I constantly question. I people. don't <laughs> know why. Uh, uh, there's a tr big hipster turnout for youth of today. To me, there's, there's nothing. There's no connection to me. There, there, there's no ironic metal connection. There's no bad black metal connection. There's no, there, there's, there's, you know what I'm saying? There's nothing hip to me about hardcore right now, to me, in my opinion. And straight edge hardcore, what's hip about straight edge hardcore, Mike? Nothing. nothing, there's nothing hip about straight edge hardcore, unless you love straight edge hardcore, right? But people there, clearly, to be there at a secret show, man. You know that what I'm saying? That could have been the element. Yes. Because in, in New York, everyone likes to be special. Yes. You know, and they want to know you know, the secret. You know, why couldn't the word hit 100 more hardcore kids in New York? Kids as it probably didn't, but it hit 100, you know, whatever, well, not a hundred, but you know what I mean. Uh, you know, 20, 30 douchebags to be there because it's a, it's a cool show, you know. I mean, I, I, it makes me nauseous. I don't know. Maybe is it because I'm an old man? I'm not that old. Is it because uh, whatever, you know, the young whippersnapper? No, it's nothing like that. Um, I just would rather, again, have seen people who legitimately like the music be there. You know what I'm saying? But there, um, there were there were there were no there were don't get me wrong over into it right no 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 I, yeah, I, that yeah. would have been a shame really no 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 don't get me wrong um, uh, more than half the crowd was there for for youth today was there for for hardcore but to me too many of the crowd was not um, well, well you know that that neighborhood is a, a, like a, a, a sort of peripheral yeah center of, of hipness and know? it's just look this is it, it's been going on for ten years okay this this. Hipster, Williamsburg, Bushwick, Green. I'm capping it around 2001. It's still here. 
probably isn't really going to go anywhere. Uh, maybe the rents will get cheaper eventually, but for now, it's pretty much everything stayed the same to me for the past 10 years, as far as this respect goes. Um, but I don't know. It's just weird to see it infiltrate a, 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 a reunion-type gig of a, of a hardcore band from the late 80s. I just thought that was kind of strange. No? I don't yeah. see any hip factor there. No. Just just where it went, where the show was, probably. Exactly. Music, yeah, I mean, had the show there. been somewhere else, maybe a different uh, yeah. approach. Had the show not been so late, maybe, maybe also a different approach. Had it not been the second of two shows, different factors, right? Yeah. And also, like, that neighborhood, for someone from Jersey or from upstate or Connecticut or from Long Island, they... It, it, unless you know where that venue is, you're going to have a hard time finding it. Yeah, and, no, and no. It's, it's like not near... No, it is off the beaten path. Be, oh, way off the beaten path. If you're coming from Long Island, you can maybe take the Jackie Robinson and mm -hmm. find your way through the neighborhood, you know? But, but the show went off without a hitch. It was very well attended. Everything was cool. Everything ran smoothly. I don't know. I just feel like uh, certain people who showed up for it, I was just like, why are you even here? I don't know. I mean, again, that may sound douchey to some people it may sound elitist to some people it may sound whatever but I just I don't know I just I, I, I'm smart enough to know what I mean when I say something like that sure. and, and to have a point to something like that when I say that you know and it was I wasn't the only one thinking it either um, uh, you know so aside from that Youth Today were great they sounded great um, talk to uh, Ray and Purcell a little bit about future shows that they're playing Connecticut I believe in November sometime and you know um, uh, like they said they were asked to play next year's Black and Blue Ball but they don't know and I'm like oh okay but uh, heard some rumblings though of something for next year because uh, 2012 marks the 25th anniversary of Revelation Records oh, yeah. and um, I'm just going to say it. it might not even be true but they, they, it's, I mean supposedly Rev is, is planning a tremendous 25th anniversary show in California, which is where they're based out of. But so again, this could be just bullshit. With into another quicksand judge youth today with everyone basically, like everyone, yeah, yeah, including Inside Out, supposedly. Inside Out. Yeah. Now, if this happens, I'm getting. If it happens and there's enough time, I'm getting on a plane and going to California to see this show. Fuck it. I'm old enough. I'm. 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 You probably. They're not going to do any mother. If Inside Out actually plays a show, I mean, shit. To me, I always thought that band was great. I wasn't even the biggest Rage fan, but to me, to see a set yeah. of Zach singing those songs to me is pretty yeah, well, I mean, fantastic. They're, they're way different bands, though. Yeah, no, and but supposedly it, it, it's, it's this big thing they have in mind, which is great because they kind of slept on the 20th anniversary, which I thought there was supposed to be something cool planned for that, but they didn't really do too much for the 20th. Um, for those who may not know, Revelation Records was the, the seminal... Uh, initially new Connecticut based hardcore label yeah. that put out the early records of Youth Today Sick of It All Judge Girl Biscuits Bald all the you know Revelations 1 through uh, 20 for some people is you know the bible I, I'm obviously quite a fan um, and to me I that'd be quite a gig to see Quicksand and, and, and supposedly Judge and supposedly Inside Out into another the, the whole gamut of their, their rouster oh Sick of it all on the stage that would be pretty cool. It would be a lot cooler if it was in New York. However, for I understand, it's supposed to be in California. Yeah, well, they're out there. In That's where the label is, exactly. Now. Right, right. Revelation also put out that Sick the um, Kissing Goodbye record, too. Absolutely. <laughs> who knows Who knows how far this fest, yeah. which, may, which 
may not be happening. I don't know. I like my track record for things, though, Mike. I don't know. If you do some homework on me, sometimes when I, I say things... You're usually right on, man. Sometimes when I say things, they happen. Yeah. But, but, and this is November. We shall see next spring or summer. But anyway, um, yeah, that would be something. Um, again, I don't know. It's like I, I, I go on websites and, and I, read, I read backlash about, you know, older hardcore bands or even older people going to show. Like, it just... The, the age thing has has reared its ugly head in a way backlash that I can't even who like younger kids douchey or? douchey people on message boards, Mike. That's what I'm talking like, about. Is it backlash of older people like, against yeah of of younger types saying if anyone over thirty was at youth today, you should be ashamed of yourself. Like what? It, what? Like yeah, I mean, I can just feel some people thirty early thirties didn't even get to see youth today, so why yeah. should you be ashamed of yourself? You know what I'm saying? It's like, I mean, and also the thing is, it's like you know the same thing you said if you're. You know, I mean, those guys are all in their 40s at this point. Mid 40s, exactly. And it's, know, like, it's like, how many more times are you going to see them, number one? Number two, I'm sorry. If there's a demand for older bands or bands from the 80s, whatever, then that means someone gives a fuck. You know what I'm saying? And then yeah. it, it's more than three old guys giving a fuck. Yeah. Don't you see what I mean? Like, if bands are able to do well that are from 20-something years ago, that's that has to say something. It's supply and demand. You know what I mean? Um, a lot of people will argue that that's the uh, some may think that's the best era of hardcore some may think the earlier era is the best era of hardcore the later era it doesn't matter if there's an audience that's what matters if people want to see yeah. it I mean it also depends on like what you know the best and all that kind of stuff is, is what, what your preferences exactly. are I mean, exactly it's, not, it's all subjective really you know I mean you know that's that's uh People might only like West Coast hard, hardcore. You mm -hmm. know, they might think Black Flag and, and the Circle Jerks and stuff are like really where it began and ended. Mm. You know, Minor Threat could have been the, you know, the beginning and the end. SSD Control, like bands totally. like that. You know, like that could have been like it. it. And yeah, after exactly. That could have been you know like oh this is all like said and done at this point. You know. See the interesting thing about this the second wave of hardcore, the, the wave where like Youth Today, Sick of It All, kind of came from, is that. The window of time it lasted a bit longer, and these bands did a lot more touring than some of the first wave bands. Well, they were able to because and they of were, the work exactly the first wave bands did, and the, the groundwork that was laid. But they were able to get it more exposure and maybe go to Europe and maybe you know what I'm saying like. My friend didn't get to go to Europe. SSD, DYS, they, they didn't go to Europe. You know well, what I'm saying? Well, there was no, there was exactly, no there was no right. There was no exactly, support. exactly. Yeah, and I just feel like. These bands made an impact, you know what I'm saying? I mean, we all know the impact that your, your Misfits and your Minor Threats and your Black Flags made, but now we're seeing the impact of bands maybe from a little bit of a later era, you, you know what I'm saying? Right. Chromex and Sick of It All, like, Chromex drawing eight, 900 people at a, at, a, at, a, at a free show and drawing about five or 600 at a pay show, what is that? I mean, that's, to me, that again, it's supply and demand. Sure. People want to hear those fucking songs, they want to see this band, right? I mean. Who gives a fuck how, like, age, whatever. John Joseph is, is in better shape and is a better frontman than 24-year-olds than out there. It's like, I don't understand. I don't understand it, you know? Yeah. Why hate on things because they aren't new anymore? I don't I don't get that. I don't understand it. My only criticism... We're talking about movies from 40 years ago, yeah, Mike. 40 years ago, yeah. yeah. My only criticism is that a lot of these bands don't do anything. They don't continue or they don't do anything new. It's no. Not, it's not the fact that they're playing together, mm -hmm. but it's there's sort of this, like... You know, Las Vegas, like Elvis vibe, <laughs> where, where it's like, okay, man, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna play songs that well, are 25 years old. Some could argue 
I just want to hear the hits. I don't want to hear the material. And that's a subjective Something thing. Right? That, that's think yeah. about that. I mean, all I can say is for me, I don't, I don't really care for that myself. Right. You know? As a fan and as a musician, yeah, you're not into that. Obviously, but I'm not Bruce, going to criticize right. anyone. Like Bruce Dickinson, apparently, he's not into that. He's about new music. Like, yeah, he has said many times over, it's it's the new records that keep them on tour, and it's the like their their younger fans like their new records. Almost as much, if not more, right? Iron Maiden's a different ballgame, obviously, from the fans we're talking about, but that's an example of someone probably on your page. Me, again, I just look at it from uh, maybe a fan standpoint and a musician standpoint, where, as a lot of times, I won't like it. Older band, whatever, mid-level band, mid-period band, coming out and saying, okay, we're doing our entire new record front to back. I don't necessarily always like that. Um... I feel like I, I, I kind of don't mind seeing Chromex go out and play Age of Crawl front to back because what if the new material doesn't cut it? What if, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know, some bands are smart in that sense of not making a record, but in a way, they're stifling their creativity by not making another record and they're stifling any type of challenge, right? I mean, not I, I, don't, I don't extend this, this to like just hardcore bands. I mean, even hmm. bands like I Hate God who, mm-hmm. who are. Um, you know, their last their last record came out, and like it, it's got to be ten years ago. Mm, yeah. They're still out mm-hmm. on the road recently mm-hmm. after a long period of inactivity, mm-hmm. playing songs. From, not one new song. Not, one, nothing, new not song. one new song. Yeah, you know, awesome. and it's and it's the same thing. I remember when they first started touring, and I remember sitting, you know, going to the show, and just it just felt like watered down. It felt mm-hmm. it felt very like I was watching Elvis perform "Hunk of Burn and Love" or something. <laughs> and, you know. Like the fat Elvis, not like the lean. Right, lean, I know what you're saying. Like, I mean, yeah, everybody has their own opinions on these things, and I feel like there does come a time when you when you want to stop, or there does come a time where it's like, you know what? Maybe we should just write some new music. You yeah. know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But as far as uh, bashing people or bashing yeah, bashing band, someone is a completely different thing. To right. have your opinion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I'll support anyone's opinion as long as it's their own ideas. But once they start, through whatever ego they might have, start reflecting that on other people and mm-hmm. thinking that you know, well, well, since I feel this way, everyone has to feel that way, mm-hmm. and you're a fucking clown for not feeling like I feel, then I don't support that at all. And Especially this- on message boards where mm-hmm. people have no fucking uh, heart or soul or any kind of like courage. An example know? of a of a band that was uh, had a huge misfire with a new record and has not even torn the states yet off a new record is Morbid Angel as we call it. Oh god. They have not played <laughs> I believe they have not done a US show in support of this record that no. came out in uh, June. They're supposed to tour in the fall um, the spring of, uh, of, of next year. That's a long ass time to wait. Yeah. People are already saying I hope they don't do one damn song off that record. I know I don't. They have that. yet to even in any interviews I've read with them, I'm I'm quite a fan. I read as many interviews with them as I can because I'm I want to see some admission of a misstep. They have yet to have any type of admission of any type of misstep, any type of anything. However, uh, Pete Sandoval has expressed his dislike for the record. He's not on, on the record though, and he, yes, he's not on the record. He could not play on it due to injury, mm-hmm. blah blah. Well, he's on a new Terrorizer record that's coming out. And he says he does not like, not like the new record, that he would not have played on this new record. And pretty much, I, to me, said some statements that just almost guarantees he's probably not in a band anymore. Who knows if that's true or not, but at least someone on the team is has their head on straight, for God's sake. Jesus Christ. 
that band, such an important, beloved band. Oh, yeah. Who so many people thought, myself included, that this record was going to be a monster, mm -hmm. a death metal statement, a, you know what I'm saying? Just like a milestone comeback record. No. On par with Carcass's Swan Song as disappointment. Dude. In some ways, yeah. more disappointing yeah. than Carcass's Swan Way Song. Way more disappointing. Yeah. Um, huge missed opportunity. Huge missed opportunity. I remember listening to that Swan Song record. Oh, it was a depressing <laughs> day. That's a couple of months. In 1995. Like, oh, that was a depressing day. Yeah, it was. I, I revisited that a couple months mm. ago, and it really it almost brought me to tears, man. It's like a bad Megadeth record. It's and, a bad mid-90s mid Megadeth record, you know? It's yeah. just like... Way just out of touch, trying to like latch on to like some mm. other thing that they're not good Your at. Your name so is now. Carcass. Don't play anything but death metal. I'm sorry. Don't play anything but you're, you're a morbid angel. You're, you're, you know what I'm saying? You're, you're, come on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's just like, like when Entombed got all retarded for a little while, and they did. No one liked it. To me, I almost feel like Entombed did so much damage. When they started making good records yeah. again, so many people had written them off that they didn't even come back to their good records. Because I think the last two three records are good, solid metal records. For the most part, death metal records. And now people left them in so hard that they didn't come back. Yeah, because their shows are pretty disappointing yes. recently. They came through a couple of years, mm -hmm. and it was kind of like... Yes, sparsely attended. What a shame, too, because I still love them. And I, I would, you know, If I was in town, I would have gotten Yeah, yeah. Them. I like them, like them a lot. Um... On the music side, one of the, to me, one of the greatest uh, death metal bands of all time, called it a day, Dismember, broke up uh, last week after 23 years as a band. Wow. Yeah. Um, and man, people are upset about it. People are, people are more angry about it because they thought, yeah. what, what are you doing? Like, you know, you guys are like, again, one of the least changed bands, a band that, again, very beloved, just to me, much more great records than not great yeah. records. And their last record, Self-Tiled, was a phenomenal record. Also, it's very similar sort of sound to like classic Entombed. Yes, right? exactly. Um, and gets more respect than Entombed, it seems. And they, they yeah. unfortunately called it a day. It's kind of sad. Uh -huh. Loved Matty Carkey's vocals. Oh my God, one of my, my favorite death metal singers. The, the riffs on their records, man. Again, the last Self-Tiled record. Is a monster record. Check it out. One band that always continues to deli to deliver though is Immolation. Who we yes, saw. we saw two weeks ago. Wow, talk about getting better with age. Talk about the band to replace Morbid Angel in, in yeah, American I death so. metal. I hope so. Um, taking nothing from Cannibal Corpse, who are probably really the the biggest American fully functioning non-broken up non-sellout right. death metal band and also probably technically yes players oh yeah are on par with yeah exactly um i mean man like what a great show what a great band great front man just like these and these guys all these years they all have full-time jobs like they, they 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 admitted themselves in in interviews music was about love of music and love of death metal. It wasn't a career. Although we've been on labels, we make records, we go on tour, it's not our job. That's an interesting statement from a band that's been around, again, since 1988, 23 years. Yeah. Um, never broke up. Small period of inactivity between the first and second album when they got let go and Roadrunner let go of all the death metal bands and they wound up on Metal Blade. 
That was the longest they went, I think, without making a record, about four years. But they did not break up in that time. Um, you know, it's just unbelievable. I, I feel like they're bigger now than they were when I saw them almost about 20 years ago well, in the early well, 90s. Well, Death has been on the upswing for a little bit. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, um, the shows are a little bigger. Maybe in our neck of the woods, in Brooklyn, black metal is a bit more of a... A little more of of, a, of the bite of the pie, and there's more black metal new bands, and there's death metal bands. Yeah, absolutely. Well, because um, it's harder to play death metal. I think you're right. Black metal. I it's think like, it's hey, it might be a little harder, and I mean, it's harder to be a good well, death. metal I was going to revise mm. that statement. I mean, to be a good death to metal be a good death metal band, it's harder. You can't suck. Yeah. You can't phone it in, and if you do, it's cool. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If you're a brand new death metal band coming out there, and, and you're horrendous at your first two three shows, you, you're done. Unfortunately, it's not the same for Black Metal in Brooklyn because I think there are some horrible bands out there that are doing quite well. So, hey, what do I know? Um, I, I mean, the, the thing is, too, with Black Metal, it's like, it's sort of, um, you know, more, it's less technical and more, like, feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But a lot of bands hide behind the feel mm -hmm. as opposed to really and, putting it talent, out there. Right, you know, exactly. To say, and they, they, they just execute the style and it's like, okay, we're like a Black Metal band or whatever. Yeah, I mean, even even to be, you know, old school death metal, you, you can't suck. Um, you know, I, it, it, I am a little surprised that there's not more straight death metal coming out of New York when at the shows, is, I mean, there's always, the shows are always well attended. The kids are there. Yeah. I would think a new death metal band would have a nice audience, I would, I would assume, uh, especially a good one. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, seems like a, not, not much going on there. I don't know. If it is, it's very small, I guess. I, you know, or we haven't heard it yet. You know, I think there's definitely a strong extreme music scene that runs yes. runs completely independent and parallel to the hipster metal thing mm -hmm. that's going on. Yeah, there's factions. Uh, you, you, you know, you talk about the different factions in the hardcore scene, which still exist and probably will always exist. But the, the several factions, it seems, in the metal scenes as well oh, in yeah. New York. Yeah. Like we went to that Impiety show, mm -hmm. Jacqueline and I, and Paul and Janice, his mm -hmm. lady friend. We went to see Impiety at St. Vitus recently, and it was like a very, very well attended show mm. for a, a pretty small band, pretty yeah. obscure band, really. Mm -hmm. Definitely. But there is a place was packed. I don't know if it was sold out, but mm. and it wasn't a cheap show either. Oh boy, it was like a twenty-five dollar show. Oh <gasps> no! Well, I mean, they're an international band. They have a lot of. I, yeah, I threw down though, man. Oh, I threw down. Brutal, brutal. Me and Paul went in. Nice. Our, our our lady friends actually opted to stay out and hang out in the yeah, bar hey, and, hey. you know talk 25 well hey they're from freaking Singapore I don't have a problem with that they, because they, they came in they, it's amazing that they're they're here yeah. in certain respects um you know 25 is a little steep for that kind of crowd but, but I guess the other the thing that a, a sort of point I'm trying to make is like a few days later Bison came through from Canada mm -hmm. who are great friends of, of mine and like mm -hmm. you know my, my band Tombs is toward another together. another I would call a metal band yeah. but not the kind of metal that right. Piety plays obviously no 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 different type that show was attended by people who I've never seen in any of these other types of shows before hmm, right yeah, but they were like fully metal metal right. regalia hmm. you know like maybe nice recently same we said the same thing about Immolation the people at Immolation are not going to see Kralis. They're not going to see, um, you know, uh, you know, Tomorrow's Never Ending, Forever's Yesterday. You know what I'm saying? Those bands. They're not going yeah. to see those bands. Uh, they were death metal fans. Yeah, um, young and older, right? It was, yeah. you know, uh, 
a lot of death metal shirts. Cannibal Corpse, Deicide, Obituary, oh, yeah, death metal shirts, death Christian yeah. death metal, you know? Uh, again, who I probably don't necessarily see at every show. Uh, definitely some few faces, obviously, you know? Going to shows this amount of time, you, you're bound to recognize yeah, right, people. But yeah, there's definitely little splinters and factions of people. Um, you know, people come to see Tombs, people who come to see Black Anvil. Uh, it's it's different. People who only go to like the, the five dollar shows in the middle of nowhere, Williamsburg, may not go to Gramercy, BB King's, uh, blah blah blah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, but that's great. I feel like that's a it, it's good that there's that many fucking kids to go around. In I think a way, so. Right? I mean, yeah. that's that's gotta say something. Yeah. I definitely think that's good. You know, and it's not just like people who are jumping the boat. No, you know? um, I like that. I like that people are passionate about something even if it's like you know something that's like as much as I get a trip to see a very young kid with a very old hardcore band shirt I get a, just as much a trip as to see a really young kid with a very obscure metal shirt sure. <laughs> well I mean one, one kid one really young kid is, is Anthony who's in Sheer Terror now mm -hmm. who was in Disnial mm -hmm, right guy's like what 23 years old 24 yeah 24 you know and he's he's like a student of hardcore. You sure, know what I'm saying? Yeah, like he yeah. started very young. I can't even remember the name of his first band. But Chainsaw <laughs> Safety put out a seven inch by his first band, mm. and they, they were all like eighteen year old kids. I remember. Mm. And um, you know, I mean, I mean, technically, if you think about it, that's that's not really that young for when you and I got into no, hardcore. No, I mean, we were like 15, I was fifteen. Like uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, uh, the New Breed comp, the the infamous missing. Piece of the, the, the New York hardcore comp puzzle is coming out on, on vinyl and CD for the first time ever, and uh, a band I was in when I was 15 is on that, and that's uh, it's the first recording at 15. You don't see a lot of that now. I no. mean, it, it, not in the hardcore scene. I don't know any 15 year olds in, in bands in the hardcore scene. I go to a lot of hardcore shows. I do a lot of homework. I don't see it. If it's there, wow, I'm I bug the fuck out. Um, back then you saw it. Hardcore was newer back then, you know. It was yeah. it was it was new. It was underground, and it was probably more youth oriented then. It was than definitely it is now. more youth oriented. Now definitely. there's a lot of older dudes yeah. at hardcore shows who've never left and still yeah. love it, yeah. which is fine. Need more, maybe need some more kids in there. I you think know what so. I'm saying? Yeah, because yeah. I remember my I my first, you know, dipping into the pool of punk rock and hardcore was. I think I was in eighth grade or something that's like that. That's young, dude. 13, yeah, 12, like, that's This young. kid who was two years older, this guy, Mike Katz, I mm -hmm. he went to California for the summer. And before going to California, he was a metal guy. Right. I was in, I'm, I've always been more of a metal dude. Right. I've always been Sabbath, Judas mm -hmm. Priest. You know, that was my shit growing up. And then I got into hardcore. Right. And it wasn't even until I heard Black Flag that I cared about hardcore. Mm -hmm. So this dude, Mike Katz, Van Halen, ACDC guy, <laughs> he goes away for the summer he comes back and he has like a leather jacket on with like a Ramones painting <laughs> on the back punk rock haircut that's it a cassette tape on one side was Let Them Eat Jelly Beans compilation uh -huh. and the other side was the first suicidal record forget it that first suicidal record changed me at about the same age a lot of people and um, that tape Dubbed cassette made its mm -hmm. rounds through all of our oh, friends, yeah, and we just totally. dubbed it down. And then the Let Them Eat Jelly Beans comp with that like DOA, Black Flag, mm -hmm. Dead Kennedys. Forget it. That was like. I heard the New York Thrash cassette when I was eighth grade, going into ninth grade. I was a metalhead, and Beastie Boys were huge at the time. Yeah. 
And my friend said, this is the Beastie Boys. No, it's not. Yes, it is. This is before they were a rap group. Get out of here. Like, I remember I was like, get the fuck out of here. Like, I couldn't believe it. And sure, yeah, it was the Beastie Boys, you know, the New York Thrash Comp, you know. Uh, That's another one of my early excursions, you know, hearing punk and for the first time as a little metalhead kid going, what the fuck is this, you know? Yeah, but like, that's, the thing is, though, it's like, that stuff was not like readily available. No, you had to you dig, had to, Some kid had to go to California to bring it back, <laughs> or you had to find out about exactly the right record store to go to that had that kind of The stuff. last time that shit happened to me was with death metal and then black metal. Yeah. Um, there was a time when, in like 93, 94, it was not easy to get black metal record, like Osmos record stuff, you know? Um, it was expensive. The yeah. CDs were very expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, Bleaker Bobs would have like one or two, and Generation wasn't even open yet, and it was it was kind of hard to, to, to come across some of that stuff. And that was probably the last time uh, music reached me by primitive means, so to speak. Tape tra- uh, I would tape trade from Metal Maniac's uh, personal ads in the back. Yeah. Pre-internet. I, I got exposed to a lot of stuff through that, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, like this girl in like 1995 made me a mixtape of, it was weird, it was goth stuff and black metal stuff. It was kind of strange. I've always put those two together. Yeah, weird. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, they've definitely come a bit closer together now. Back then, it was fairly separate worlds, you know? Yeah. But uh, yeah, it had like Impaled Nazarene, the Seven Inch, and then like maybe like Dismember's Demo. And uh, three Christian death songs, and uh, a few Mayhem songs, and a few uh, Bauhaus songs. It was a strange tape trade for 94, 95, you know? Unbelievable. Yeah, there was also that uh, blackmetal.com website mm-hmm. in the 90s. That was like the first thing to surface, I remember, where you can actually mail order. But it was expensive, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it still is. But now it's just like <laughs> you can download everything or, you know, whatever. Loki's getting there. Loki, be good, damn it. Oh, you like this bag? You probably smell my cat door. Be good. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, right now there's a kid discovering hardcore, death metal, black metal, and it's probably on the computer. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to write any letters to get that song, you know? Yeah, I, I, missed, I missed the personal touch to those <laughs> things, though. You know what I mean? Because it's like, I, Jacqueline and I are working on a, a short documentary that we, my friend Kuro shot, who I've done some film work over the years but it's uh, centered around Malcolm the guy who did Trash America yeah, much, yeah, yeah. And he, he well yeah, with a famous him. record store sure. on the east coast at least you know and we, we shot a bunch of footage and we're editing it down eventually it's going to be available on this blog cool. you know it's like a 15 minute short and it's going to be uh, you know talking about that loss of community sure, sure. Uh, kids are growing up these days without that connection well, if we were in prison, as we saw, um, <laughs> Jesse and Damien, uh, they were writing letters, man. That's how you had to do 